This Wednesday morning, January 22nd, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Espinoza v. Montana, a case that could become the most important education case and religious liberty case in recent memory. At issue is whether a Montana state constitutional provision, barring aid to religious institutions, one of 37 so-called Blaine Amendments across the states, can be used to exclude religious schools from a private school choice program, or if doing so runs afoul of the U.S. Constitution's Free Exercise Clause. So what did we learn from the justices questioning in the case? Are Blaine Amendments on their way out? And if so, what would be the consequences? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss the oral arguments in the Espinoza case is Josh Dunn, professor and chair of the political science department at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and the legal beat columnist for EdNext. Josh, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks for having me. So it's been less than 24 hours since the transcript of the oral argument was posted, and you already have a piece up at educationnext.org offering your take on it. So let me thank you on behalf of our readers for the exceptionally quick work and now for taking the time to discuss the case with me today. So let's start by setting the context for listeners who may not be familiar with the facts of Espinosa v. Montana. What's the background here? So in 2015, the Montana legislature created a uh, scholarship or voucher program uh, to, uh, for, for students who uh, could that students could use to attend uh, private schools. And it was a tax credit program where people, there's a very modest amount that people could designate as a tax credit, $150, with a total cap of $3 million that could go into the program. And there were uh, three parents uh, who ended up being the plaintiffs in this case who were taking advantage of this. They were all single mothers, low-income mothers, who who wanted to uh, use these this uh, tax credit, the scholarship they, they could receive from it, to send their kids to a Christian school. Uh, the Montana Department of Revenue, after reviewing the statute, decided that Christian schools or religious schools must be excluded from the program because of that state's Blaine Amendment. And Blaine Amendments were amendments uh, added to state constitutions, mostly in the late 1800s, early 1900s, saying that no public money could go to sectarian institutions. Now, Montana's Blaine Amendment was originally added before Montana was even a state, uh, but then when Montana rewrote its constitution in the 1970s, early 1970s, they included the Blaine Amendment uh, in, in that revision of the constitution. Uh, so then it went to the state Supreme Court. The parents, those three parents who were receiving these, uh, these scholarships for their children, took it to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court struck down the entire program. They said that, yes, under the, the state's Blaine Amendment, no funding could go to a religious institution, even if it was indirect in this case, and even if it ne the money never even came into the state coffers, uh, which is interesting because elsewhere around the country, when you've had these t kind of tax credit programs that would then provide vouchers or scholarships for students, you've had state courts say that they, in fact, weren't public money because it never actually went, went to the state. Uh, but there they said, no, this is, uh, violates the state, the state Blaine Amendment. But then they also struck down the entire program because they said that the Montana Department of Revenue was not authorized to sever the uh, religious schools from inclusion in the, in the program. So the entire scholarship program had to fall. And then that set the stage for yesterday's oral argument. And you mentioned Blaine Amendments and their origins in the late 1800s. One of the issues that came up in oral arguments 
was the idea that an important part of thinking about religious liberty in the founding era of the United States is that there might be good reason to avoid having the government funder become involved in supporting religious institutions in part to protect religious institutions from intrusion of the state. But it doesn't seem like that was the kind of thinking that actually was informing the adoption of Blaine Amendments. Is that right? That's correct. The Blaine Amendments were largely in response to anti-Catholic sentiment at the time. And so sectarian had a particular meaning for most people in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and that meant Catholic. And the idea was, among many, uh, that they would try to make it very difficult for people to for Catholics to send their kids to Catholic schools. So then they would they would have to they would have to go to public schools. Uh, and of course, the public schools were not uh, neutral when it came to religion. They were largely Protestant schools. Uh, so that was part that was part of the goal was to to take Catholic kids, get them into the Protestant uh, the Pro- Protestant public schools. It really did originate in this animus towards Catholicism. And so part of the argument, though, is, well, when Montana re-ratified this, they were, they were just trying to protect religion from the interference of the state. But there's still the problem, which is that's, one, deeply paternalistic. No one's forcing a religious institution to participate in a program if they, if they actually think that it will weaken uh, the, that institution. Uh, but then they're also deciding for the institution, you can't participate whether you want to or not. And so there's still there's still discrimination there, even if it's just, well, we're discriminating against all religious groups, not just Catholic groups now. And the other aspect of the legal background relevant to this case, of course, is the Supreme Court's more recent 2017 decision in Trinity Lutheran. So tell us about that and what it implies for Espinoza. Right. So Trinity Lutheran was decided just two years ago, really, 2017. And that case involved a grant program that the state of Missouri had to provide funding for projects for institutions around the state. You could you could apply for it, and if you if you get uh, the funding, uh, you you know then in the case of Trinity Lutheran, it was a it was a school and church, and they wanted to use this grant to resurface their playground using I think recycled uh, car tires or rubber, and. When they applied, they were actually ranked as one of the very uh, best applications. But then the state decided that they could not receive the grant because they're a religious institution, and they said that because of Missouri's Blaine Amendment. So the Missouri's Blaine Amendment was then what prevented them from being able to receive, receive this funding. So it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court in a 7-2 decision, the five conservatives on the court uh, at the time were able to get Justices Breyer and Kagan to join them. Uh, but I think because Brian Tagan joined them, they, they couldn't be as explicit about what they wanted to say in Trinity Lutheran. They were, they were saying that, well, under the free exercise clause, you can't impose a burden on people simply because of their religious identity, because of their religious faith. And this clearly imposes a, a burden on Trinity Lutheran simply because they're religious. They, they can't participate in this. And so they said, no, you can't you, you can't do this. But they avoided explicitly striking down the, the state Blaine Amendment. Uh, although in a dissent, the, the dissenters, Justices uh, Sotomayor and uh, Ginsburg, uh, said that the Supreme Court all but struck down uh, state, state Blaine amendments. So it was kind of hovering out there. I think anyone with a modest level of reading capacity could understand that the Supreme Court, didn't, didn't, one, did not want to have to officially strike down Blaine amendments, but two, wanted to send a signal to state courts, 
please don't use your Blaine amendments to single out religious institutions for uh, for for punishment, so that they couldn't participate in these in these neutral public public programs. So that was there, and in a way, the Montana Supreme Court. Uh, well, they said that they said that the the, the the Blaine Amendment did not contradict the Trinity Lutheran, but it was, it was pretty obvious that it did. Uh, and so that was kind of hovering over the background of all of this as well. And so one way to think about the question in this case is whether Trinity Lutheran is controlling or whether there's a way to distinguish the facts in Espinoza, which deal with a scholarship to attend a religious school from a playground refurbishment subsidy. So let's turn to the oral argument itself and and what we learned. The first thing that jumped out to me when I read the transcript is that it was the liberal justices you just mentioned, Ginsburg and Sotomayor, who really came out of the gates firing. And they zeroed in on the issue of standing. That is, whether the plaintiff in the case, Kendra Espinoza, had adequate grounds to challenge the Montana Supreme Court's decision. And you argue in your piece on our website that this focus on standing was actually a sign of weakness. How so? So I think for a couple of reasons. One, the Supreme Court, its its standards for standing are incredibly lax. And so almost anyone can reasonably combine standing under the Supreme Court's doctrine. And the Supreme Court will invoke the doctrine of standing only when it doesn't want to hear a case when it serves really some other institutional or political purpose for the court. Uh, so you think about the case Elk Grove versus Newdow involving the Pledge of Allegiance and Under God. That was a case where it was clear the Supreme Court just wanted to punt it, the, the issue, and they said, well, uh, Mr. Newdow is the non-custodial parent, so he doesn't have standing. You know, the Supreme Court easily could have decided that issue, but I, you know, they, they, they didn't want to ha- have to because it would have been a day of reckoning, I think, for, for, for the Supreme Court. And so they, they, they use it to avoid the issue. Uh, so you do that, once again, if you're trying to just avoid deciding, uh, deciding the case. And so I, it struck me that the very first questions were all devoted to, well, are you proper, properly before the court? Uh, the second reason it struck me as uh, very strained and coming from a place of weakness was the fact that the Supreme Court essentially decided in Zellman versus Simmons-Harris back in 2002 that, yes, parents who then receive the scholarship or the funds on behalf of their student, they are properly plaintiffs, right? They have a, they, they have a stake in the matter. And so uh, the, the idea that somehow the, the conservatives on the court were then going to reconsider whether or not parents who receive scholarships for their children uh, aren't properly plaintiffs struck me as uh, really difficult to believe. It was... <laughs> It was really like a Hail Mary pass, but you're trying to throw it from the one-yard line. <laughs> I mean, maybe they're just hoping that Chief, the Chief Justice decides that he really doesn't want to decide the case, and then he'll join the four, the four liberals on the court and say, well, we're just going to get rid of this on, on standing grounds simply because we don't want the consequences that might come with a direct, uh, uh, I think, reputation uh, or overturning of the Montana Supreme Court. So just to push on that a little bit, the liberal justices advanced two arguments related to standing as I read it. One of them is the one you just dealt with, uh, whether Espinoza rather than the school would be the one right. denied a benefit. The, the second point related to standing 
deals with the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, the Montana Supreme Court ordered that the program be eliminated altogether. And as a result, the suggestion was made that the ruling didn't actually create a situation in which religious schools were being singled out relative to other private schools. The attorney representing the plaintiffs, Richard Comer, his response to that was, you can't let the remedy shield the discriminatory judgment. What did he mean by that? Right. So I, I think, once again, two, two things there. You, you can't simply say, well, we're going to not provide the funding for anyone. And therefore, no one really has anything to complain about. Because, again, under the doctrine of standing, if you can show just some basic economic harm, the parents should, could, could clearly show some economic harm. Then they're, then they're entitled to, uh, to be there. The other part of that was uh, the motivation. Right? If the Montana Supreme Court and the Montana Department of Revenue did what they did because of an incorrect understanding of what the Constitution required under the Free Exercise Clause, then that didn't shield them uh, from uh, being reviewed by the Supreme Court. Right? They still they, they couldn't say, all right, well, now that there's no, uh, no, no issue here uh, because no, no one gets any, any benefit, we can make this decision for clearly unconstitutional reasons and carry on and no, no one can actually uh, bring a case. Uh, so that was that was the other part of it that you uh, and I think you know, Justice Alito asked about that, uh, and I think a couple of other justices addressed that address that point as well. Well, that look, there was a clear uh, unconstitutional motivation, or if there's a clear unconstitutional motivation for what uh, what they're doing, are people allowed to are people allowed to uh, to, to bring suit? And their their obviously uh, their obvious implication, at least among some of the conservative justices, was yes. And it was interesting to me that Montana's attorney explicitly rejected these arguments concerning standing, saying at one point that, look, historically, the courthouse doors have been open to make that kind of argument. Uh, and so even he didn't really take up the uh, invitation that the justices provided to uh, run in that direction. Yeah, I think he probably recognized that it wasn't going to be a winner. <laughs> and so he just. He didn't want to uh, spend his time trying to press the court on that issue. Now, a more interesting line of questioning came from Justice Breyer uh, and dealt with a hypothetical about what would happen were the court to decide that what Montana did violated the Free Exercise Clause. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Justice Breyer asked this question about whether or not they would be required to then, or, or governments would be required to fund private religious schools uh, if the Supreme Court were to strike down and overturn the decisions of the of the Montana Department of Revenue and the Montana Supreme Court. The idea was government, local government, state governments fund uh, education, and so this is a benefit that is provided to everyone. So if uh, you can't exclude people from this benefit. What's the difference here? Because uh, Montana created a program and then decided, well, we can't fund, fund anyone. Uh, but given this reasoning, why wouldn't this just include all forms of education then, or all providers of education? What's the justification from excluding anyone, private schools, both secular and religious private schools, from, from receiving this benefit? Wouldn't that reasoning necessarily imply that you have to uh, compel 
state and local governments, uh, school districts, to support uh, pri- private schools. And I think he raised that question because he was he's trying to get the Chief Justice to avoid offering the strongest possible uh, decision overturning what the Montana Supreme Court has done. That he would like he, he wants to get the Chief Justice to to offer some opinion where they restrain it and say yes, uh, what Montana did was unconstitutional, but we aren't going to go so far as to say that then you have to provide funding for all private uh, for private schools as well. Uh, as long as you're just providing this public benefit, you have to do so you know do so neutrally. Um, so I think that's why he raised that that question. The issue though is whether or not you can actually re- restrict the reasoning. As long as you overturn what Montana has done, what then is the justification? And, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I suspect the, the Chief Justice will address. My guess is that he's going to write the majority opinion, uh, and he'll try to carve out some rationale for where what Montana did is unconstitutional, but then just the general decision of governments to not fund uh, education and for private institutions is not uh, un- unconstitutional. Well, it seems to me that a state deciding that it only wants to fund schools that it controls directly and not provide funding for private schools is quite a different question than what's at stake here. And I think the sort of analogy that uh, was more powerful to me uh, was the one provided by Justice Alito in his questioning about whether a state would be able to offer a private school voucher or scholarship program only to schools of a particular religious denomination, uh, excluding some, but including others. And he said, look, we all agree that that would be problematic. And, And that seems like the right way to think about this. Does that make sense to you? Yes, uh, although I, I do think there, there might be some people that will press the court on this issue, issue and say that, that trying to make that distinction doesn't really work in the long run. Uh, you know, I, 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 didn't get this, I did not get the sense that, that Alito or the Chief Justice, of course, wanted to, you know, to go that far. So I think that you are going to get opinion that, that, tries, to, that tries to make, make that kind of distinction. Uh, but there might be, you know, looking at Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, I could see them actually accepting the idea uh, that it might, it, it might require it. And probably Thomas, too. You know, of course, he was his normal taciturn self and didn't, and didn't say anything during the oral argument. But that's, uh, you know, uh, that, that, would, that would be my guess about his, his leaning on it. Now, in talking about the relevant precedent for the case, I emphasized Trinity Lutheran at the outset of the conversation, but there was another important prior decision that came up at oral argument, and that was the case Locke v. Davey, a case that was decided shortly after the Zelman v. Simmons-Harris case that upheld the constitutionality of vouchers for religious schools in the early 2000s, and that uh, actually provided a prior opportunity for the Supreme Court to strike down Blaine amendments, one that many observers at the time, including one prognosticator in Education Next, thought the court would take up. Uh, what happened in Locke v. Davey, and how is it relevant to this case? 
So Locke versus Davy involved a scholarship program from Washington State where they would uh, provide scholarships for, for students who were attending a qualifying institution uh, of higher, higher education, but they excluded the scholarships for students who were pursuing, pursuing training in theology or ministerial training. And they did so under their, under their Blaine Amendment. And the Supreme Court decided the case and said that, yes, Washington State could exclude scholarships from students who were pursuing training in theology to be ministers. And in discussing that case, commentators often refer to a concept of the play in the joints between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. That is something that it would be okay for the state to do, in this case, offering scholarships to those pursuing degrees in theology under the Establishment Clause. States could do that without violating that prohibition, but something that they could choose not to do without running afoul of the Free Exercise Clause. So is another way to think about this case whether offering a scholarship for private education at the elementary and secondary level similarly falls in the play in the joints. Yeah, so that that's what uh, certainly I think the, the liberals on the court would, would want the court to rule. Uh, and, and in some ways what they're saying is that the establishment of clause allows some discrimination against religion. That's that's what the play in the joints means. That the pre-exercise clause means that you can't impose a burden on people because of, of their religious beliefs. But the establishment clause then does somehow allow for some level of discrimination that wouldn't be allowed under the uh, under the free exercise clause. Uh, some of Justice Breyer's questioning indicated that this is the direction he he would like he would like to go. Although I suspect that he'll try to be practical or pragmatic and be willing to compromise if it, if it means getting the chief justice to, uh, to go along with a, a more, modest, more modest opinion. Uh, but I do think that Locke versus Davy is clearly the exception uh, here that rather than the rule, because it was training for ministers rather than just broadly education. Now, Justice Breyer did talk of, uh, say something that affects, well, there's nothing more religious other than actually training people to be ministers than religious education in general. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, that that's what he was trying to get at. But I don't think that I, – I, I certainly don't see the four conservatives uh, going along with that and the chief justice, who's pr- pretty conservative as, as well, of course, but the one who's been willing to be more accommodating to – to try and reach compromises with some of the others on, on the left on the court. So I don't think that Locke versus Davey is actually going to uh, be decisive here. The, I, don't, I don't know that the court will overturn Locke versus Davey, but I think they will say, look, this is the exception and not the rule. So as you acknowledge in your piece, it's dangerous to predict what the court is going to do based on oral arguments, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think is the most likely outcome here, and what would it mean? Yeah, so I, I laid out two possibilities. One would just be a clear statement by the Supreme Court that Montana's Blaine Amendment violates the Free Exercise Clause, full stop, and then that's it. And then, of course, by implication, all the other Blaine Amendments around the country uh, would have to be considered unconstitutional as well. You might have to end up having litigation over them, uh, but... They, they would largely be, be inoperative. Now, given the Chief Justice's minimalist disposition, that is, he, he tries to avoid these um, decisions 
that are unnecessarily strong or controversial, at least in his mind. You could imagine him trying to work to craft an opinion where they essentially overturned the Blaine Amendment in the same way that they essentially overturned the Blaine, uh, Blaine Amendment in uh, Trinity Lutheran, but not explicitly saying so. Uh, so what might happen is that the Supreme Court, now, if I had to put money on it, I think it would be this option, even though I'm not exactly certain how they're going to pull it off, but the Chief Justice is pretty smart and can be clever on these things. Uh, so what they might do is just simply say the Montana Supreme Court misunderstood the the federal question, the, the question of the meaning of the free exercise clause, and then send it back down for them to reconsider uh, in light of the court's judgment or s something like that. And then that would just allow the Montana to Supreme Court say, oh, yeah, I guess we made a mistake about what our own Blaine Amendment actually requires. And they could come up with some rationale saying, oh, well, you know, this is not direct aid. It's only indirect and allows them to to save face, but then also allows the Supreme Court to avoid explicitly overturning Blaine Amendments. I think the, the difficulty, as I see it with that, is that the Montana Supreme Court is the final interpreter of its own constitution, and they've already said this is what our Blaine Amendment means. And uh, so in some ways that boxes the Supreme Court in a little bit, but I could still, I, I still think the Chief Justice would like to avoid declaring in essence, uh, 38 constitu state constitutional provisions unconstitutional. To some extent, the distinction between those two options is a distinction without a difference. The latter one would leave Blaine amendments on the book technically, but essentially say that right. they couldn't be used to strike down school choice programs like the one at stake here. I suppose there might be some as yet unidentified set of facts to which they would apply without yes. violating the free exercise clause, but uh, it's hard to imagine what that would look like. Exactly. Yeah, so that second option would, would erode Blaine amendments into insignificance. <laughs> They'd still be there, but it's not clear what function they would actually be performing. As you said, there could be some conceivable set of facts where they might still have some effect. But given the, what the Supreme Court would have then done in Trinity Lutheran and then in Espinoza, it's, it's not clear what, what effects that might, that might be. It's, it's difficult to imagine. So there would just be kind of like this appendix uh, that's, still, that's still there, but no one knows exactly what function it's performing anymore. And of course, the practical implications of either approach would be that if states create private school choice programs, they would need to include religious schools in those programs. They couldn't simply say you can't participate because you're a religious school. It's interesting to think back to Zelman v. Simmons-Harris when the relevant question was, could religious private schools be included in these programs at all? And when you think about in a relatively short period how far that debate has moved, it's Pretty striking to see. Yeah, so within 18 years, you would have uh, moved from that. Yes, they, they they can be included to now, if you want to do this at all, you must include them. And I do think that's the minimum outcome, regardless of which option the Supreme Court chooses. That's going to be the minimum educational outcome of this, is that these programs will have to include uh, religious schools. And that's regardless, you know, obviously, if they just explicitly strike down the Blaine Amendment, or if they go in this more 
uh, moderate direction, you're still going to be left with that outcome. My guest today has been Josh Dunn, professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Legal Beat columnist for Education Next. His piece analyzing the oral arguments in the Espinoza case, entitled Burying Blaine, is available now at educationnext.org. Josh, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.